This is the second part of the history. Ursula, we have to stay positive because it's the only way we can survive. I'm hearing from the other prisoners that Nazis are losing the war. It's only a matter of time. We just need to hold on. Can you do that, Ursula? She nodded. I can do that. So they went, wanted to make it. When they go out of the camp, they were going to eat too much, Ursula thought. One summer night, Ursula lay on the ground and gazed up at the stars and the moon. By the beginning of 1945, the Germans were retreating and conditions at Bergen Belsen were intensifying. Built to handle a few thousand, the camo was receiving prisoners from other concentration camps and now had a population of more than 40,000 adding to their misery. Epidemics of the life-treating disease, typhoid and typhus raged throughout the camp, killing many prisoners a day. Time for the levies was running down. Josh was 14 years old, and that time Ursula was 9.5 years old. While 2,500 prisoners, many of them dying from illness and starvation, were loaded into boxcars. George grabbed Ursula's hand and went his way through the crowd and into one of the train's few passenger cars. Their journey was bad, as many prisoners from, the, from there ended up dying every day. The train moved slowly through the forest and countryside, making, making several stops a day because of added bombing up ahead or mechanical breakdown. The prisoners had nothing to eat and drink, so when they were allowed to search for food, they went out and searched what they could, like track of plants, water and more. At one stop, Ursula stayed on board while George go out and search for food, in search for a fruit tree. Just then, he heard the train start to move. He looked around, he saw no words, that was the chance to escape, he thought. He could hide on the woods and wait for Alice to, to show up. They were going to be there and he would be free. The train started to gain a little momentum. He thought about Ursula, so finally he doesn't do that. He searched and found for an apple, so he returned to the train. Ursula was worried about his brother and he said, I broke you a present. He broke the apple in two and this time he gave the bigger part to his little sister. American fighter planes attacked the train more than once because it was also carrying a German army detachment. The train would squish to a stop, allowing the passengers and soldiers to scramble off and hide under the cars or lie prone against the railroad embankment. On April 23, the train stopped again this time for good, from the front of the train to the back, passengers spread the wonderful news. We are free, we are free. The Soviet army had seized the train and captured the Nazis war. Josh had dreamed for that moment in many years. The liberation came just in time to rekindle the last spark of life left in prison, but was too late for all the people that died as prisoners. The survivors staggered into the village, which was deserted because the people there feared the Soviets ha and had fled. 
The Soviets soon brought order to the town, but there was little they could do to stop the mounting death rate. The freed prisoners were still dying by the typhus that was a severe infectious disease transmitted by lice. From the 2,500 prisoners who had boarded the train in Bergen Belsen, only 600 were still alive. In June 1945, Joachim and Ursula took a train to Holland, where they were reunited with Joseph van Mecklenburg. He fed and clothed them and took them to a hospital, where they were treated for malnutrition. They returned to State Jacobus Children's Home in Ersel and attended school there, once again enjoying Sunday dinner with Father Weyers. Soon the children know a disturbing fact. Their mother had not died in 1942, as George had been told, but she had been working in Germany in labor camps throughout the war and had died of typhus at a concentration camp, camp near Danzig, Poland, just a week before the camp had been liberated in 1945. Both George and Ursula continue to maintain a long-distance friendship with Joseph van Mecklenburg family in Holland. This is another history, this time it is about Walter Schiffer. He woke up on the morning of September 1, 1939 to the bombing sound of thunder. Unfortunately, what he heard wasn't really thunder, it was the rumbling of distant artillery shells rushing to the window of his family apartment, the 12-year-old boy saw nothing but chaos, confusion and commotion. It looked like the whole world was retreating for, from a terror not yet, not yet seen, but the terror was real. The German army had just invaded Poland. Now the Nazis were advances, advancing straight for, toward Walter hometown of Seski Tessin, a historic city of about 40,000 people. Then the silence returned, only to be ruptured half an hour later by a rhythmic thump, thump, thump. Peering out his window, Walter saw hundreds of German troops marching in columns in flawless harmony. Their Polish Black boots striking the pavement at exactly the same time. Tom, tom, tom. To Walter, the parade of Ramrod straight. Nazi soldiers was both impressive and scary. Leo would remind them that he had studied law in Vienna and had represented dozens of Germans in lawsuits, and he assured them that the Seifers had nothing to fear. But Walter had not, no doubts. We remember how Francel, a distant cousin from Vienna, had come to their home and told them how the Nazis had tortured him. The Schiffers lived comfortably on the top floor of a building that housed a grocery store on the main level on, and the owner's home on the second floor. The Seifers' apartment was adorned with expensive furniture, rugs, and shelves filled with books. It was a home in which Walter and Edith felt loved and secure. That emotional shield of protection began to crack as soon as the German 
arrived. Ten days after the invasion, an SS officer came to the Seafair apartment and told Leo, you and your family must get out of here. We can't have you living above us. Walter, Edith and Annie sat, sat dumbfounded in the living room. Leo spoke up. But this is our home. It was your home. You have 24 hours left to leave. The officer turned back to Leo and, and walked through the apartment. As he started to leave, the officer put a camera on a shelf. He picked it up and examined it carefully. Walter knew how much that camera meant to his father, who was a photography buff. Walter's heart began to sink as the officer continued to admire it. Don't take that, Walter thought. Please don't, but that, that doesn't matter for the officer. Leaving their furniture and most of their possession behind, the Zephyr has hastily gathered up some of their belongings and moved to, a, to the apartment house of Leo's brother two, two blocks away. For Walter and his family, it was the beginning of a trail of tears, of being forced for, by the Nazis to move from place to place. The family remained close and loving and tried to maintain a sense of normality, wanting to keep his children's mind sharp. Leo gave Walter and Edith lessons in math, science, history and English. Walter also spoke. Serge and German. Leo reminded them that they were Czechoslovakian, born on the Czech side of the river that had divided Czechoslovakia before Poland took it over in 1938. The Nazis were beginning to deport Jews, but Leo managed to de delay deportation for Walter, Edith, and other teenagers in the ghetto by finding them jobs in a big factory, where they worked. The they worked the night shift making nuts and bolts. Walter was in love with a girl whose name was Lydia Rindle. She was Walter's age and lived with her parents in the ghetto, which was their first meet. Walter, we are going to sneak out of the ghetto tonight and try to make it to Russia. My parents say it's our only hope, Lydia said. She needed to go with her parents. She wanted to stay but her parents didn't let her. Tears welled up Walter's eye and said, I don't want you to go. Lydia unclasped her necklace, removed the pendant from it, and gently placed it in Walter's palm and said to him, With that you will remember me. He said he would not forget her, and he said that he loved her. Lydia kissed him for the last time and ran off in the darkness, leaving Walter frozen in grief. The next morning, Walter rushed to the cubicle where Lydia and her family lived, hoping maybe they had changed their minds. But the cubicle was empty, just like the feeling in his heart. Three weeks later, horrible news filtered back to the ghettos. The Nazis had caught Lydia and her parents during the family's deep, desperate escape attempt and had shot them to death. When words of Lydia's execution reached Walter, he slumped to the ground as if he too had been shot. Walter had disliked the Nazis, but he had felt no deeply held hatred for them. Now he did. On June 21, 1941, the Nazis announced that everyone in the ghetto was, was being deported. The next morning, 
Walter and his family were among the 1,000 Jews who, on their arms, was marched down to an old young yard, which was next to the train station. Walter had not turned it over the Nazis. Suddenly, he felt frightened that the watch would be discovered on him. The Nazis began separating the people in, crowd, in the crowds by age. When a guard pulled Walter out of line, Annie cried, grabbed him and hung onto him. Leo and Annie stepped onto the platform just as the train was pulling away. They later knew that the train's final destination was the death camp at Auschwitz, where all those on board were exter exterminated the next day. Meanwhile, Walter, Edith and Alice were taken to the dollar, a transition camp in Sosnowiec, in German-occupied Poland. Every day, the captive young people stood outside at Apple, while the wards called out names of those who were all allowed to leave the dollar. One day, Walter and the other teenage boys were put aboard the train and taken away.